The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Tubagale, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. What is a podcast if it doesn't start with people doing the podcast app? Yeah. I don't know if you yeah. maybe have, because you're quite a fancy podcast, so maybe you have like music and intro and it's uh, all very official, but everyone loves. Have you got everything? Is that... Oh, we're recording? Wow. Oh, what? Oops. Oh my God. Hello. Have you stopped? Is this, is this on? Are is you this recording? Thing? Oh my God, oh. I just told that crazy anecdote about getting here. <laughs> hey, I'm Courtney Avenhauser and this is Up Next. It's your ticket to the most exciting artists and performers coming through the Sydney Opera House doors. Join me backstage where I'm going to be chatting to a spectacular lineup of artists, up and comers who are making waves on one of the most iconic stages in the world. The Opera House has just celebrated its first 50 years, so in every episode of this podcast, we showcase someone exciting who we think will transform the next 50 years of arts and culture. Do you like your female characters to be raw, honest, maybe a little messy in their careers or their love life? Women who haven't got it all figured out, even though they're approaching 30. I bet I'm sounding really relatable. I could be describing hundreds of female-centred stories that have become hugely popular over the last decade, from girls to fleabag to hacks to broad city. Nowhere are these tropes better distilled down to their most concentrated form than in the classic theatre format, the one-woman show. Sydney expat Liz Kingsman flips the format upside down in her critically acclaimed smash hit meta-theatrical parody called One Woman Show. The show has had rave reviews in the UK and is now touring internationally for the first time. Liz and I sat down midway through her run of shows at the Opera House. She very generously popped in just before the curtain went up to talk about how she managed to create a satire so brilliant that it ended up showing on the West End in London. Liz Kingsman, hello. Hello. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Would you like to do some podcast admin? Fiddling with our headphones, discussing our journeys in. Pouring a drink really close to the mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What was your journey like to come in today? I got the 396 bus, lovely aircon on the bus. You forget the value of aircon on public transport. (laughs) Until you're in the stinking heat in Sydney. Yep, 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 yep. I actually came in early to the Opera House because the chair that I use in the show it was slightly wobbly. Oh. And we had made a whole email chain about getting the, between the production manager and getting someone from the Opera House to come in with a drill and a bolt or something. And I was like, I'll come in at three before the podcast recording, maybe three. Me messaging on the way, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. Okay, I'll let them know, all this stuff. And then I got here and the man came to the stage and he literally just, I watched him just tighten like a screw, not even like with a tool, just like if, like if you're sat on an office chair and you thought, oh, that's a bit wobbly and you'd find something to tighten. He did that. And, and then it's... he was like, is that better? And I leant back and I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's 
that's fixed. <laughs> that's fixed that actually. So like twenty five people involved in this email chain to. Well, look, it's fixed now, and it shows that everyone really cares. It's true. It was a test, <laughs> and they all passed. Yeah. I saw your show last week. Did you see I, how loose that chair was? Well, it's a prominent feature in <laughs> yeah, the yeah. show. So when you said exactly. the chair's broken, I was like, well, exactly. that's a major issue. So you no wonder there were so many emails. Why, yes, the chair and me have a sort of 50-50 billing on the, in the show. <laughs> one woman show plus chair. Plus chair, one yeah. chair show. One exactly. chair show. You know, you're speaking now and you've got this effortless British accent, but you're actually from Sydney, right? Yes. Yes. What is the truth? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> uh, this is my voice. This is my real voice. Okay. Unfortunately for me, I am from Sydney and then I shed my Sydney voice, not intentionally, mm. in London and in Durham where I went to uni. All the students at the uni I went to spoke like this and it just sort of rubbed off on me and then, and now I don't sound like I'm from Sydney, but I am from Sydney. But you do a flawless Australian accent in the show too. So it's oh, like... That's, that's good. I'm glad you used the word flawless. <laughs> you can hear like a, there's like a giggle just for the accent here that there isn't in when I've done the show in London and then I do the Australian accent, they just think, oh, she's doing an accent. But here there's a ripple that goes around the room of just like, I think it's fear that someone's <laughs> going to attempt it because it's famously a very hard accent to mm. do. And I think people butcher it a lot. Yeah. And I... I feel like I am butchering it in the show. Really? But it is legitimately the voice that just sits underneath my other voice. And so I've been worried in the weeks leading up to coming here that it was all going to fall apart with that one character. So uni took you to the UK? Yeah, so I went to uni. I went to uni actually at Sydney Uni for a very short period of time and then left it. There's no slight, no slight on Sydney Uni, which is a great uni. I just had sort of had my heart set on going to the UK for so long. So did you study film or something else? No, I just studied English and history. I wanted to go to film school, but it's very hard to get into film school if you've not already made films. I think maybe they're going to cotton on to that catch-22 because obviously the only people that can have made a short film without going to film school are the ones who are loaded. So, like, mm. I think maybe they'll figure it out soon, hopefully. Hopefully. Hope, maybe this podcast is going to be the thing that really breaks the film school industry wide open. But, yeah, I, I desperately wanted to go to film school and just, like, could didn't meet any of the requirements. <laughs> so We laugh now. We laugh. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, ha, ha. It took me so, so much longer to go into the industry. Ha, 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 ha. But look so, at me yeah. now. Look at me now. I'm so near it. <laughs> yeah. So I heard in an interview that you didn't actually tell anyone that you wanted to be an actor until, like, your mid-20s. Were you quietly pursuing acting during that time? Saying that I wanted to work in as a director or working in the film industry was, like, a safe way of getting near it without having to say the deluded, insanely deluded thing of, like, I want to be an actor, mm. which I still can't say. Like, you know when you do the, your landing slip, not slip, whatever it's called, that, that thing oh, they hand you on. In, it's like uh, occupation. Yeah, I just, like, what snapping my pens. I wrote, <laughs> animal trainer. But, yeah, I just couldn't, can't, can't bring myself to write actor. It's really fun for my agent. <laughs> <laughs> do you think any of your mates kind of cottoned on? I was definitely, like the stupid one at school like in terms of comedy stuff like I was definitely the most into comedy like class clown kind of sort of but I guess it, we didn't really have like I didn't feel like we had a class clown and it wasn't me I meant like <laughs> I meant like you still had opportunities to show off and be stupid and funny at school okay. like you just yeah, did yeah. right I did do drama at school yeah and then we also did like house plays and things like that so there's always opportunities to be like 
I think I'm funny, you know, or like I whatever, you know, whatever it is. So you were having those moments when you were young, like kind of testing the waters in comedy, getting kind of that rush when you get a laugh or being into watching it? Well, it was only until uni I started writing comedy at uni. Mm. Okay. I didn't think I could pursue it as a career, but it was very fun. Very stressful as well, like putting on a comedy show at uni when you, you've not tested any single one of the jokes out beforehand. At our uni, they had a really great student theatre mm-hmm. called the Assembly Rooms and you could book... They had, like, say a term was nine weeks. They had nine slots. Everyone would queue in the morning at, like, 6 a.m. on the day. They released the slots. You'd have to be, like, act like a business person and be like, yes, I am going to make money off this thing. And we are, got, you know... We, and oh, to, do, like, picture show? like, do, like, an application form oh, and picture wow. show. But obviously there was only, like, a limited amount of people who wanted to do that. And so pretty much everyone would get, like, everyone would get the slot they want. So every <laughs> term it would just be, like, the same people doing, get with another slot. Uh-huh. But it was really creative because, like... You'd just you'd bag a slot and yeah. then you'd have like you'd have four, a five weeks, whatever it was, to put on a show. Yeah, and so it was really great. It was just constant. Like you were sometimes in like three or four shows at the same time. Oh wow! Just every, but everyone dovetailing and being like, "Are you doing the Shakespeare tour?" I'm, you know, we're such like, nerds as well. Like, no, I'm not in the sixth slot. I'm exactly in eight, yeah. Slot eight. You know, after exams, when everyone else in the uni was just getting pissed and having picnics, like all of my friends, we were all just like, "Well, I've got to learn my lines for, for Beatrice." And so, so, so wholesome. Yeah, it was so wholesome, so nerdy. We didn't go clubbing. We'd just stay up all night writing comedy sketches. I love that. Just the drug of comedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The sweet high of making people laugh. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think it was that drew you into comedy back in the day? I don't know. I guess it was a combo of, like, everything I'd watched growing up. I watched a lot of British comedy. And then suddenly I was sort of in England, surrounded by people who knew those references, and we all had the same sort of reference pools if you know what I mean that must have been so joyous just be like yes they get it they get where I'm coming from <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so I'd only watch BBC shows and then yeah, what kind of shows? made sense I guess I, lo- I watched a lot of like Big Train and Smack the Pony Mighty Boosh and Ab Fab and mm-hmm. you know it's all the classics really yeah, I remember it. discovering Mighty Boosh on SBS at like 1am and being like what is this and we couldn't even remember, like, we didn't know what it was called. It wasn't until I got to England that I was like, oh, I have seen Mighty Bush. And then you learn that Mighty Bush is enormous, this enormous cultural touchstone of, like, so many comedians in the UK. Mm. I was in the wrong hemisphere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you found it now. Yeah, yeah. But I desperately miss Sydney, so. What is it that you miss the most about Sydney? I just miss the... It sounds like this is an advert for Australia, but I just miss the quality of life. Like, yeah. I miss... The sun, it sounds so obvious, but I, like I miss that your day can just be nice and not miserable. Like, I think in London, you have to seek things to make things joyful because it is grey and cold and raining and everyone has a great sense of humour. And that's, you know, everyone has a lovely sense of humour and everyone is doing fun things. But it just feels like you... I do have days of just waking up and being like, it's like someone's just taken the colour out of everything. Mm. And then you come here and everything's just like gorgeous. And like your eyeballs are hurting because everything's so gorgeous all the time. And and everyone is so gorgeous as well. The sky is too blue. Yeah. It's just so, you know, and so I miss the, and also just that I think just people here have got it right in terms of like what they prioritise. They're like, 
I'm going to clock off at this time and go go for a swim. And you're like, that is that sounds great, actually. Yeah. It's pretty nice, especially this time of year. Yeah. Your show is mysteriously just called One Woman Show. And before going, I was trying to read up on it and loads of the reviews just say things like, hard to describe, just go see it, you won't regret it. So how do you explain the show to people? Yeah, I don't do a very good job at that. I've done a lot of press by this point, you know, for the show. Mm. I basically say, oh, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. And then I fluff around for a bit. And then whatever I give the journalist in that answer, they're not able to print because I said I said nothing useful. <laughs> so I just I just sort of stuttered a lot. And then I haven't explained what the show is. But if I was going to attempt it today, here and now, it's basically just a theatre spoof. Like it's a pastiche of the genre that the name borrows its title from. So it's a pastiche of one woman shows. I think that's a great little elevator pitch. Yeah. So to explain the show and to market it when it's so mysterious, you you created a trailer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which doesn't really convey too much about what to expect either, really. No, I was the marketing company's like worst nightmare because they said, we need some video content. And I said, great, but I don't want to make any video content. <laughs> I don't want to make any video content. And then they said they did convince me that video content was very important for sales. And you got someone pretty important. Uh, I assume you're referring to Kit Harrington. Of Game of Thrones fame. How yes. did that happen? He <laughs> just wouldn't take no for an answer, you know? He just oh, like, yeah, like, please yeah, let he was me just in. like, I didn't want him there. And the marketing company said he had to be there. He'll really get tickets. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, he's got a really big profile and I couldn't say no. <laughs> so, uh, no, I um, we just got, we just asked him. Yeah, oh, wow. it turns out you can just ask celebrities to do things and sometimes they'll say yes. Um, but yeah, we just asked him. I'd written a draft of the trailer that had him as a joke in it but that's because I wasn't taking it seriously because I didn't want to make any video content because I don't like video content so I'd I'd written a joke script almost as a sort of like well if you want me to write the video content this is what I'll write I'll write a famous person into it and then you can't have any video content (laughs) (laughs) I did my job but really badly (laughs) and then um, they were like okay but what if we actually did get Kit and I was like oh my god if we got Kit that that would actually be funny and I would be up for making video content like I'd do it and I'd do it well. I'd really commit to it. <laughs> so, and then they did and you're like, all right. Yeah, so then they, they, we asked, well, I had to message him and I had to explain to him that he wouldn't be the butt of the joke, except he was going to be the butt of the joke. So I also didn't want to lie to him. So I said, <laughs> oh, so to convince him, I said, the butt of the joke will be theatre and not you, although it will also very much be you. And then they asked me to take that bit out of the pitch because they thought that he'd say no to being the butt of the joke. And I so instead of taking it out, I said, they want me to take this bit out of the pitch. <laughs> but I'm refusing because I think you're more likely to do it if you understand that I'm refusing to <laughs> understand my gumption here. And then uh, he said yes. And so he came and did it and was great. Was there a particular moment or experience where you suddenly thought that you really wanted to parody the genre? No, I wish it would be a lot easier for the narrative if there was like a you know bolt out of the blue moment yeah i okay it started with me seeing a lot of plays not intentionally just went to see them over time over time 
noticing things, reading blurbs that sounded very similar to me, noticing adjectives in the blurbs like raw and honest that had come up again and again. And then I guess I started talking to friends about how funny I found that and we'd riff on that. I do remember texting my friend and saying, I'm sort of going to try and write this uh, parody one-woman show. But it started as, it was more of a text, it's a joke, you know, yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. like a bit, mm. a bit you're doing over text. Yeah. And then, so it's, it's arguably gone, for a bit you're doing over text, it's, it's gone, gone pretty too far. far. <laughs> yeah. So let's get back onto the show, one-woman show. Mm. It's a really spot-on parody of this, you know, relatable, messy, millennial woman trope that, mm. you know, you've done all your research in that you were mentioning before. And who were some of the people you researched? I would never name names. <laughs> uh, no, I would never. I would never be so awful to like. It, it's just because it's parody, you know. Fair enough. I think the unlikable female character is still a good thing. Well, this is the thing. It's like they might not be likable, but they can still be enjoyable to watch, and yeah. you can still like them. Yes, exactly. They're not typically likable. Yes, it's likable for an audience just means you want to spend time with them. Totally. And it just means you want to watch what they get up to. Yeah. And we've had that bar has been like that for men for years and years. Absolutely. You know, so it doesn't, we don't need, we don't need to be likable to be watchable. Have that on a t-shirt if you like. <laughs> we get some merch made yeah, for this yeah, episode yeah. alone. Thank you, thank you. My favourite sitcom is Arrested Development. Totally. Every single character in that show is deeply flawed and unlikable. Completely. Even Jason Bateman, who's the greatest straight man of all time. <laughs> Jateman. Is, Jateman, thank you. He's obviously the straight guy to all of the other people in his family, but he's got this enormous blind spot, which is like he's a terrible dad and he's proud. And so like it's yeah, they're still the most they're still the most fun. Playing anyone likable is very boring. Yeah. I guess there's like the Leslie Nopes of the world, very likable, very watchable. That's mm. kind of a remarkable feat that she's managed to do that, Amy Poehler. Yeah. But oh, she's still flawed, obviously. She's like, you know, she's super, super type A to the annoyance of people around her, but All she's so colleagues. she's so charming and good-hearted that it's very fun to spend time with her. Mm. I mentioned before that I felt a bit targeted during the show. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> But I think that's what some of the best satire does. So, you know, job well done. Did you have any fear that the show might be misinterpreted? Yes, and it definitely has been. And I used to get really hung up on that because I couldn't fathom not being able to control everything. If a headline said it was a parody of one particular show, then I wanted to respond and be like, it's not a parody of that show. I didn't even watch that show when I was making it. But I can't respond to everything and I've had to learn the process of being like it exists separately from me yeah. and it's out there and it w will get misinterpreted. And even now, like reviews that have come out this week have got massive clanging misquotes in them from the show. Like they've quoted lines from the show completely wrong. And I want to be like, no, that's not it. That's not the line. I need to fix it. And I just have to resist because it exists separately. Yeah. It's out there. I've made it. It's done. Yeah. I find it hard to learn that process. And I'm sure many people who have made anything in the history of time have learned how to do that. Otherwise, you'd go insane, right? Completely. You would never make anything. You'd never make anything. You just And potentially, I never will again. But stare at yourself yeah, in the mirror. exactly. <laughs> do you think that audiences are getting more sophisticated, like comedy audiences specifically, about kind of style and... Oh, oh, um, can't on behalf of the comedy audience 
I've just realised. <laughs> I don't know. I do know that people... Well, no, actually, i tell you why I can't answer. Because when I go to see things, I often go with other people who make comedy and we're like the worst audience because we just watch things and go like that's funny that's well done that's really well achieved no laughter yeah no laughter just but a lot of respect respect for the good joke a lot of uh, and then the flip side is when stuff really gets you like when you really get surprised by something you go for it way more but you go too hard because you're like you what I didn't expect that that really tickled me like so you end up being like sort of like slightly insane audience member (laughs) me and my friend Stevie have the exact same sense of humor and whenever we go and see see stuff she's she is a comedian and would describe herself as a comedian and when we see stuff together we will often just like not laugh and then laugh at something for like two minutes longer than everyone else and it's very annoying for people so I don't know about audiences getting savvier because I can only speak from someone who's like has, can no longer enjoy comedy because I've ruined it for myself. What made you gravitate towards complex theatrical comedy rather than stand-up? I don't want to ever be myself on stage in any capacity. Like I would never, I wouldn't even want to like host uh, an evening. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to speak at a playwriting competition as a judge, you know, like I, mm-hmm. I could never be myself or talk on stage as myself. Bit, bit too raw, raw, raw and honest, <laughs> raw, honest and unflinching. I, I suppose. <laughs> well, thank you for being here today. Yeah, yeah, I'm really struggling. <laughs> as you can see, I'm melting into my chair. But I, yeah, I'm just, I, I'm really only interested in fiction. Where do you want to take your storytelling next? I don't know where you go after the Sydney Opera House. You know. It's kind of one of the most iconic places you could take your storytelling. I don't know. I just need to have a quick nap and then I'll let you know. But um, I, f- geographically, New York. Yeah. Metaphorically, the film. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say the film lab. school. The film school. <laughs> yeah, I do, I, yeah, I, do, I just, theatre was never meant to be what I spent this f- almost four years doing. It's crazy to me. Film is where I've, where I've always wanted to work. So any day now I should get an acceptance letter from film school and then uh, and off I go. Do you have your short film ready? I do now have a short film Phew. ready, yeah. Because I became an adult and I earned enough money to fund my own short film. That's how I now have the requirements to get into film school. So if mm-hmm. they're listening, film school, you can't wait for people to get adult jobs. And, and a show at the Sydney Opera House. Yes, and show at the Sydney Opera House in order to fund their short film. <laughs> Several publications like Vogue and The Guardian have pinned you as one of the most exciting up-and-comers in the UK. How does that make you feel? (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious to know who you think are other people who are exciting up-and-comers. Ooh, that's fun. Well, I'd like to say pretty much everyone Adam Brace is working with at the moment, who Adam is the director of One Woman Show, and he's had an absolutely insane standout year so he's directed this incredible play called ages of feeling written and performed by Haley mcgee which is it's effectively like one woman's journey through life and the audience choose what path the story goes on each night and i cried recovered and cried again during her show it was it's just beautiful and remarkable incredible incredible piece of theater amazing if one woman show was a reaction to a certain era of storytelling. Mm. 
where do you want to see storytelling, particularly about women and their lives, go to in the future? I think it would just variety would be good, wouldn't it? Just like more of them, more different stories, more different characters, just variety, I think. Liz Kingsman, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was writer and actor Liz Kingsman talking about her meta-theatrical comedy One Woman Show, which ran at the Sydney Opera House in February 2023. In the next episode, we'll be hearing from Ziggy Ramor talking about his brand-new album Sugarcoated Lies and his recent acting debut in Australian TV drama Black Snow. I'm Courtney Abenhauser, and this has been Up Next, a podcast from the Sydney Opera House. From Audiocraft, the show is produced by Bernadette Fungnam Nguyen, mixed by Glenn Morrow. Executive producer is Selena Shannon. From Sydney Opera House, head of digital programming is Stuart Buchanan, and digital programming coordinator is Georgia D'Souza. The Up Next theme music is by Milan Ring. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.